0: Okay, I'm going to start with this. Can you spot the optical illusion? Ah. You saw it? Simon saw it. Why am I showing these? I'm I'm thinking about perspective this morning. Because actually, today's passage in Philippians, I think Paul wants to shift some perspectives within us. Depending on your perspective, as you watched the match last night, it might have been the best night ever. It might have been... Not the best night ever. Or it might have been a complete irrelevance and what's, what's the point in football anyway. It all depends on your perspective, doesn't it? And I think this morning, we're going to look at some things and God and Paul just wants to, just want to just leave us challenged this morning and leave us with a different perspective on, on things we might have thought about before. And I hope this will be useful. I hope your eyes will be lifted. I really think that Paul wants to take some, some of the ways we think about earthly situations and draw our gaze instead to God's magnificent big picture perspective. And I think he wants to challenge us a bit this morning. So there might be some things this morning that are a bit hard to hear. I'm aware of that this morning. There might be a couple of things where you think, oof, that, that stung a bit. Please bear with me. Please accept it and 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 just see what God wants to do in your heart this morning. So we're in Philippians as Matthew Matthew? Matt? I've never called him Matthew in my life before what I was calling him Matthew. <laughs> Uh, well, he's not here. So Matt brought a brilliant uh, intro to the Book of Philippians last, last week. And we got, of course, Paul right into a church <coughs> in Philippi, Macedonia, which he planted some years ago. And the church actually, unusually for one of Paul's letters, the church is doing well. They're actually in good shape. They haven't got any major errors that they're dealing with. Do you remember? Um, when we looked at Corinthians and Galatians, uh, and Paul was writing to address all sorts of horrible errors and messes that were there. But actually in Philippi, things are going pretty well for the church. Actually in this letter, it's Paul who's struggling. Because he's writing this letter from prison. He's locked up, actually on the house arrest in Rome. And he's awaiting what could well be a death sentence. And the Philippian church is extremely concerned for him. And actually, they've sent in this messenger, Epaphroditus. Anyone about to have a kid? I just want to put that out there, Epaphroditus. There's no Epaphroditus in the church at the moment. The name is not taken. Why not? Why not? It's a nice name, isn't it? What do we, what do we for short? Paf? Paf? Epi? Epi? I don't know. Maybe not. I'm just putting it out there. I think it's a boy's name. uh, And it's not taken. So it's there for you if you want it. Epaphroditus. So anyway, they've sent Epaphroditus to Paul to strengthen him, to encourage him. And Paul is writing back to Philippi and saying, look, this is my situation. I want you to to hear what I've got to say. And I think we're going to read the passage together now. Well, I'll read it. It's on the screen. It's the ESV version on the screen. If you've got another version, that's fine. It'll be broadly similar. Check out on the the screen. or read it in your own Bible. I'm going to read it to you now. It's verses 12 to 18 in chapter 1. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ, out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. When the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, from wh- whether from false motives or true, Christ is is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. As I say, I think God wants to shift some perspectives in this this morning. First one is this, that God is working to always ensure your happiness and comfort on earth. I think that's a perspective that God wants to shift this morning, maybe a bit surprising to hear. I've put on the screen there, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. It's a very, very famous verse. I actually believe it's possibly one of the most dangerously misinterpreted verses in the bible it might be that you've had this verse prayed over you and you've been struggling it might be that you've even brought this verse to someone else when they've been struggling and it is a beautiful beautiful piece of scripture it has truth in it for all believers when it comes to the eternal promises of god there will be a day there will be a day when we dwell with jesus in a new heaven and a new earth in perfection and pure joy. That day is coming. There is a day when those plans to prosper us and not to harm us will have absolute fruition. I had a dream last night that I'd written The Lord of the Rings. It turns out I was just talking in my sleep. <laughs> but <laughs> I, you can't boo me. Oh, come on. I've only been booed once before and there was only one person. Well, that was harsh. Wow. The reason I'm talking about Tolkien is that in the, Lord of the, in the Lord of the Rings there's a quote which says, everything sad will come untrue. That One day, everything sad will come untrue. One day there'll be an end to the pain and the suffering and the difficulty of this life. And I want to give us absolute certainty and hope this morning that that is going to happen, that is, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, that is your destiny your eternal outlook is very very good indeed one day we will fully prosper and come to no harm and that is God's overarching plan for us praise God for that but we have to understand the context of Jeremiah 29 11 and really be careful how we apply it and when Because this is not a promise of earthly fulfillment for all believers, all time. Actually, we need the context of the passage. So the very verse before it, Jeremiah 29.10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. Actually, in its earthly context, this was a specific promise. For a specific group of people, at a specific time and place, it was the people of Israel who had been exiled to Babylon, and God is saying to them, "I have a plan for you, and in seventy years you'll see that plan fulfilled, and you will be back in Jerusalem, in in the place that I've given for you." It wasn't a promise written about our earthly comfort and our earthly joy. It wasn't a promise to all believers at all time that. For the rest of your lives, you're going to prosper. You're going to have health. You're going to have wealth. You're going to have joy. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. You're never going to go through anything difficult in your life. It's all going to be great. I've got a plan to prosper you. Enjoy yourselves. That's not what it says. I'm sorry if that has been said to you in the past, but that's not what it says. And we know this because the passage we're studying this morning flies directly in the face of that context, of that, of that idea. Because when we find Paul in Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18 we find that he's writing from prison. He's under house arrest. He's chained to Roman soldiers permanently under supervision and unable to do what he's best at. Now, since conversion, since that amazing Damascus Road experience, Paul has faithfully and at great personal cost preached the gospel and planted churches and done amazing things in the kingdom. And now he's locked in prison. I wouldn't say that's prospering. I'd say that's being persecuted. Now you can imagine the Philippines have sent Epaphroditus to him. And they've probably sent him with a sentiment of that misinterpretation of Jeremiah 29, 11. Paul, it's okay, mate. God's got a plan to prosper you. If this will all work out, don't worry about it. You'll get out of prison. You'll get out of this mess. God's not going to bring you to harm. This is all going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And Paul comes back and said, Do you know what? That's not completely true. Yes, God's got a plan for me, but I don't think it's guaranteed to involve earthly prosperity and no harm. Well, how can it? Because here I am sat in jail. That's not very prosperous for me. And actually, I know that the outcome of this jail sentence could very well be that I am executed for my faith. That's not a very prosperous thing. I'd say being executed for my faith probably would count as coming to harm to some extent, in an earthly context. In fact, actually, not in this jail sentence, and in, uh, Paul was jailed again later on, and that is exactly what happened. He got the death sentence, he was killed for his faith. So he knew that there was no guarantee that he would never come to harm on earth. But what we see in this passage is incredible. Paul is so in love with Jesus, he's so in love with the God man who died on the cross to give him eternal salvation, who appeared to him on the Damascus road, he challenged him to take the gospel to the nations, that he can genuinely cope with whatever life throws at him, secure in the eternal promise of Jeremiah 29, 11. Secure that one day, one day in eternity, he will come to no harm and he will prosper massively. And if that means in the meantime on earth he suffers, Paul amazingly is all right with that. That's why he's able to write what he does in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now good, it's not good by earthly standards, it's good by God's standards. This passage isn't saying everything that happens is good. It's not saying that. There are things that happen that are bad. Liverpool won the Champions League final last night. That's bad. I'm joking, I'm joking. There are things that happen that are bad, but God can work all things together for good. And Paul understands that. A bad situation in isolation can be worked together for God's good in the great scheme of things. Do you see the big perspective shift from maybe modern Christianity? Do you see how, especially in the Western world, we seem to think that we're owed comfort we owed peace we owed wealth we 're owed happiness, as if the ultimate goal of our faith is this comfort and safety here on earth that if we 've got the nice house and the good family and the car and everything's sorted and the job 's fine, then that 's what that 's god you know, 's intention for me i 'm not saying there 's anything wrong with that stuff, but it 's not guaranteed in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Jess and I, Jess doing our impact course at the moment. We're, we're studying a book together called Just Do Something. It's a really interesting book by a guy called Kevin DeYoung. And Kevin says this, Many of us have had it so good that we've started looking for heaven on earth and we've lost any sort of pilgrim attitude. It's all a matter of perspective. If you think that God has promised this world to be a five-star hotel, you will be miserable as you live through the normal struggles of life. But if you remember that God promised we would be pilgrims and that this world may feel more like a desert or even a prison, you might find your life surprisingly happy. Do you see that? Do you know what, friends? Suffering, persecution, pain, guilt, grief is normal in this fallen world of ours. And we mustn't expect everything to go our way. Even when we're stepping out obediently in doing God's will. I can tell you that from my story. Six years ago, we very clearly, I very clearly, Debbie got on board later on, uh, (laughs) felt the call of God to come to Liverpool. I mean, it was so crystal clear that God wanted us to come to Liverpool with our friends, with Chris and Tor and Matt and Becky, and be part of planting Freedom Church. Six months before we left, Debbie and I were expecting a child and we had a miscarriage. It was hard, it was painful. We were working through that as we were getting ready to still try and come to Liverpool. We got pregnant again and on the day, the actual day that we got in the car and we packed the van up and we moved across Liverpool, Debbie was having a miscarriage on the M62 as we travelled over here. Three years in to being here, I was diagnosed, as most of you will know, with depression and anxiety, partly as a result of going back to those miscarriages and the stuff that happened and unraveled in between then. It was difficult. Our house in Leeds that we we owned in Leeds, we still own because we bought it six months before the credit crunch. It is in horrendous negative equity. We can't sell it. And we had a tenant in there who in the last year owed us £5,000 in rent, which before we actually just cut her loose and say, just go, we won't chase you for the money, but please, we need our house back. It hasn't been a picnic. And yet I know that we're here because God has asked us to be here and that he is faithful. The streets of Liverpool have not been paved with gold for us at times. There has been rich blessing, so much rich blessing. We've had two amazing kids, two more amazing kids since we've been here. But there's been hard there's been pain and there's been sorrow, there's been hardship. Like trying to get a time icon <laughs> when you're trying to make a serious point in a preach. You know, for now I have to accept that my sin filled life on this imperfect planet may not always be full of prosperity and yet I rejoice that God is building his church and I get to be a part of it. And there are people sat here today who are in a relationship with God as a direct result of Freedom Church Liverpool existing. And I rejoice at that. Not because of me, but because of God's big picture, because of the story that he's working out for us. Sometimes that knowledge has been the only thing that i it has got me out of bed in the morning, frankly, other than my kids who will not let me stay in bed. <laughs> but you know, when things are not going great, I have the comfort and the peace and the assurance and the hope that God is ultimately bringing all things under the authority of Christ for eternity. But in the meantime, when things are up and down, the glimpses of heaven and the muck and the mire of earth are enough for me. And I rejoice in it. And that was true of Paul. He saw the bigger picture. He understood that not everything would work out. In fact, he says again later in Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, not maybe. There's going to be pain, there's going to be suffering in the short term on earth. But the perspective shift is this. Instead of focusing on, what we think is the guarantee of prosperity and comfort on here on earth. We expect suffering in our earthly lives, but rejoice that God guarantees us prosperity and comfort in eternity. And that's what gets us through. That's the first perspective shift this morning. The second one is this. This may be controversial when I first say it. But the perspective I think Paul wants to shift is that persecution is disastrous for the church. And you might be thinking, what? How can persecution be anything other but bad for the church? And I want to be careful here. Look, persecution, the active opposition of people against God's church, which in some countries involves imprisonment, death, every horror you can imagine, it's a horrendous experience. We should never want it. We should never ask for it. It's good to pray for those who are suffering from it, including ourselves. So don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying that persecution is great which we should all celebrate. But I'm also saying it's not necessarily a disaster. Why do I say this? Because of what Paul says. He says this in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ what Paul is going through in prison is advancing the gospel. He's somehow able to look up from that pit of persecution and see that God is using it for his glory. And what's more, he's sharing the gospel with the people who put him in prison. He's got Roman guards chained to him day in, day out on a shift rotor, and he's just preaching the gospel to him. And with great effect, actually later in in, uh, chapter 4, Verse 22, it says this. Paul sends a, greetings, a greeting back to the church. He says, all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. That's the gods. That's the Romans who are imprisoning him. And they're sending messages back to the Philippians church. Saying, hey guys, we love you. We're God's people. We're saved. We're part of you. Isn't that bonkers? Absolutely crazy. But Paul has taken a persecution and And seeing God do miraculous things through it. And what's more, verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Isn't that amazing? Now, if I I or you were writing this verse, I'd probably start it with the word, despite. Do you know what? Despite my chains... Something amazing's happened, and God's done something, and, and I, don't, I can't quite get my head around it, but despite this happening, these people are, are, are going for it with the gospel. But no, look at the word he uses. because because of my chains. If this hadn't happened, then that wouldn't have happened. This persecution has a direct benefit. Actually, people have seen me, they've seen the situation I'm in, and they've seen what I've done in that situation giving people the gospel and they've seen the response of the guards who, who've suddenly saying wow yeah paul i know we're supposed to be keeping you locked up here but i believe <laughs> i want to join your team and so the people around paul instead of being petrified instead of worrying that oh my word what if i'm locked up next no they're preaching the gospel all the more confidently and proclaiming it without fear because of what's happened to paul that is incredible Awful things are happening to Paul, and there's a positive effect that he rejoices in. It's such a challenge to us. My mind turns to the Chinese church. Many of you have heard of Brother Yun. If you've not read the book, The Heavenly Man, it needs to be on your, your reading list. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. It's Brother Yun's autobiography. He's an evangelist, and he lived in China, and China was very heavily state controlled, communist. Government who allowed a certain form of state-controlled control Christianity to exist, but anything other than that they will crush. And the choice for Christians in China is: Do I go for this sanitized, government-controlled, very limited practice of Christianity, or do I go for the gospel and the church that God has called me to join? And Brother Yong was one of those people who who said, No, I'm, I'm not accepting this sanitized state version of Christianity. This half Christianity. I want to live the Bible. And so he served to advance this underground house church movement in China. He was ultimately put in a maximum security prison where he went 72 days without food or water and then the Holy Spirit broke him out of the jail. No one has ever escaped that prison before or since. And if you read the story, it's incredible because nothing happens. (laughs) He doesn't dig a tunnel. A big army of Christians doesn't come and smash down the wall with a tank. He feels the Holy Spirit say to him, Get up and walk out. And he gets up and walks out. And nothing happens. It's absolutely incredible. Since then, he's been exiled from China. He's been unable to return, but he's led this movement, Go Back to Jerusalem. It's a movement which sends thousands of missionaries out from China to proclaim the gospel on the route from China to Jerusalem. It's amazing. Now, you may be tempted to think and say, yeah, but imagine what he could have done if there wasn't persecution. Imagine what could have happened if, if he hadn't been put in prison. How much more could he have achieved? My brother brother Young would disagree with you. He says this, we never pray against our government or call down curses on them. Instead, we have learned that God is in control of our lives and the government we live under. And God has used China's government for his own purposes, molding and shaping his children as he sees fit instead of focusing our prayers against any political system we pray that regardless of what happens to us we will be pleasing to god wow it goes on don't pray for the persecution to stop we shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry but a stronger back to endure then the world will see that god is with us empowering us to live in a way that reflects his love and power. This is true freedom. Death is not the end for a servant of God, but just the start of an indescribable, everlasting life in the presence of Jesus. Oh, give me the faith of Brother John. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? He's not directly asking God for persecution, but he's certainly not asking to escape it. He simply asks to be pleasing to God and for the gospel to abound. That's his passion. God, take your gospel further. Use me however you can. I will be obedient to you. If it means pain, if it means suffering, I'm up for that. But just do what you need to do. He's a man who understands that 2 Corinthians 12, 9, 11, this is Paul speaking again. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Persecution seems disastrous on the front page, doesn't it? But actually, God can do amazing things. We looked at that verse before. He's working all things for good. We need to not be put off by the threat of persecution. By the threat of someone not liking what we're going to say. By the threat of someone disagreeing with our faith. Personally, I try to see persecution as a sign that we're doing something right. We're doing something that the devil does not want to happen and he's actively going to oppose. If the devil's not trying to oppose us, then we're probably not preaching the gospel as effectively as we should be. We're probably not doing enough. We're probably not on the front foot enough. Because he's not even having to bother. If he's persecuting us, then we're doing something right, as painful as that is. So when we see persecution, when we experience persecution, we're going to pray for it. We're going to pray for our brothers and sisters who are in pain, who are struggling with it. But we're also not going to lose heart. We're not going to think that all is lost. And we're going to be expectant for God to use that situation for his glory. So the old perspective, the shift of perspective we're shifting from persecution is a disaster for the church and should cause a major panic. And we're shifting to God can do incredible things to advance his gospel despite persecution, even because of persecution. And when we're at our weakest, he is at his strongest. These perspective shifts, accepting suffering and understanding that it's a part of life and not being afraid of persecution I'm well aware that's tough sledding for a Christian not a great message to try and sell to people is it guys come and join this mission <laughs> it's going to be tough you're going to suffer and, and you might be persecuted join him <laughs> it's not easy is it it's not maybe what you wanted to hear this morning you might have turned up and wanted me to preach to the other side of Jeremiah 29:11. Oh, it's all going to be fine God's going to give you what you want it's all good How did Paul cope with this? It's very simple. He lived and breathed for Jesus. And he adored and prioritized the mission of making him known. That's what he says in verse 18. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached. Christ is preached. That's all that Paul bothers about. That's all he cares about. He knows Jesus, and he wants the world to know Jesus. His own suffering, his own troubles, simply don't matter to him as long as the gospel is advancing. He knew that his salvation was secure, that the eternal promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 was secure for him, and now he needs to know, he needs to let everyone else know that that's available to them. And so in verses 15 to 18, when he talks about um Some people who are using his suffering to prosper themselves. So there are people who are starting to preach the gospel while he's in prison and are trying to take lots of credit for it. And they're trying to be the big guy and like Paul's out the way now. So maybe I'll be the leader. Maybe I'll be the ace preacher. Maybe I'll be the one to spread the church. Look at me. I've got the limelight now. And Paul says, do you know what? If they're preaching the gospel, go for it. That's fine. I don't need the limelight. I don't need the spotlight. As long as they're preaching the gospel right They can have it. Now he's got a big problem when people are preaching a false gospel. We saw that in Galatians when we studied Galatians. He corrects and he rebukes in the strongest possible terms when people preach the gospel wrong. But if people are preaching Jesus and preaching him right, he doesn't care what their motive is. He just says go for it because that means the gospel is spreading. Single-mindedness is often seen as a negative trait. Just ask Theresa May who's single-minded focus on one particular way of doing Brexit and nothing else. It's costed her career, her job. She's gone. And a big criticism was oh, she, she won't listen. She's, she's just focused on this. She won't hear all the people's opinions. She's not flexing. She's not doing this. There's a bit of a, a negative spin on single-mindedness sometimes. But actually I think there's a positive spin on it. I want to talk this morning as, we, as we, we draw to a close about what I'm, I'm calling gospel tunnel vision. Do anyone remember Linford Christie? Barcelona in 1992. He won the 100 metres for Great Britain. Absolutely smashed it. But previously, he'd struggled in his career with distraction. Actually had a problem that he would race, and he'd be so worried about the guy to his right and the guy to his left, and thinking, are they, are, they, are they close to me? Are they coming up? Am I ahead? Am I behind? Are they faster than me? Have they got a good start? That he would lose his focus and lose his concentration, and he'd lose the race. And eventually, his coach turned around to him and said, Linford, nothing in those other lanes can help you win that race. There's nothing. Nothing going on around you is going to help you to get to the finish line faster. You need to focus on your lane, your race, and forget everything else. And so he started to treat his lane in the 100 meters like a tunnel. And he called it tunnel vision. I'm just going straight ahead, everything else is gone. I'm focusing on me and my race and getting to that line as fast as I can. I'm not going to look to the left, I'm not going to glance to the left or the right and going for it. And he won with that complete clarity of thought, zoom straight ahead. Many people have said that I am very physically similar to Linford Christie, but I'm, I'm not sure. You know, Most of you haven't seen me run the 100 metres, so you, you have no way of knowing how true that is. Don't doubt. You know, Paul, I think, had a very similar kind of tunnel vision when it comes to preaching the gospel. It was his true passion his, of his life and his ministry. And the whole of this passage and much of Philippians is him saying, yes, this is bad, that's bad, this is sucks, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in prison, it's not great. But look at the gospel. Look at what God is doing. Look at how he's saving lives. Look at what he's promised us. This gospel is all I care about. I don't care what's happening to me. Look at this gospel. Do you know if the gospel stops getting preached, then I'll worry. Then I'll get downhearted. Then I'll get downcast. But as long as that's going forward, I can handle anything. This is bigger than me. It's bigger than my circumstances. And if I suffer while others are preaching more as a result, then keep me in these chains. Because I want the gospel to go forward. I want as many people as possible to know the glory of God. And the salvation of him in their lives. Do you know guys. In the Christian walk. There are a million and one things. That can distract us. From what is truly important. We sang it this morning. I brought that word tonight the night. It revolves around his throne. But there are a million and one things. That can try and distract us from that. But the reality is. We've been given a stunningly. Simple set of instructions by Jesus. He gave us the great commission. Therefore. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's it. Go and make disciples. Go and find people who don't know Jesus and turn them into followers of Jesus. And start by preaching the gospel. Because people cannot follow Jesus without knowing who he is, what he's done and why they should follow him. Now, discipleship is a multi-stage, lifelong process. So we don't just convert people to Jesus and then just leave them to get on with it. That wasn't Jesus' model. He spent years personally with his disciples, three whole years just loving them and inputting to them. And then he went and he sent the Spirit to be their guide and their discipler. So discipleship doesn't stop the moment that you become a Christian. But flipping heck, it starts with preaching the gospel. We, We can't do the rest of discipleship unless we've done this first bit. Recently, we, as as an eldership team, Chris and Matt and I went on a conference down to uh, Kent, somewhere in the south. Don't need to worry about it. Um, and we actually, part of this conference, it was called A Learning Community. And what we did, we painstakingly, and I mean painstakingly, reviewed everything that we do as a church and in the context of making disciples. So what do you do from start to finish to make disciples, to bring people to fullness in Jesus? And you know what? Actually, as we reflected, we do a lot of great stuff. (laughs) We do. As a church, there's some really good stuff going on. Like I look at some of the stuff we're doing. We look at academy. We look at our life groups. We look at foundations. All the different things that we're doing. Look at our our outreach ministries. We look at our our charitable stuff. There's some brilliant stuff going on. And people are growing in Jesus. But actually, as we look at the balance of things, we realize that too much of what we do it's helping Christians become more mature and not enough of what we do is about helping non-Christians become Christians in the first place. And we had to reflect on that and and recognise that actually the balance of those great stuff happening and brilliant stories to tell and I rejoice in every single one of them, we could do more at this front end. And as we discussed it, we reflected in part that there's a, we maybe felt a bit of a lack of gifting in ourselves that neither Chris or Matt or I or maybe what you would call an Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 evangelist. We maybe haven't got that spiritual gift of, oh, you know, I don't think people look at me and think, there's Chris, his main gifting is evangelist. I'll be honest, I, I don't think that's my main gift. Some might say, what is his main gift? I don't know. Um, 100 meters. Thank you, Peter. 100 meters. Oh. Honestly, if you see me run it, you'll see. But actually, as we reflect, we can say, yeah, actually, one of the reasons we probably struggle is it's not our main gift. But you know, the Great Commission wasn't only given to gifted evangelists, it wasn't given to a chosen few. Right, everyone, have fun, be Christians, and just a few of you, can you go and do the make disciple bit while everyone else enjoys church? It's not what it says. It just says to everyone, go and make disciples. Paul even says later to to Timothy, Timothy's main gift, pastor, apostle, not an evangelist. But Paul charges him, do the work of an evangelist. That's not just for someone else. You need to be an evangelist too. And actually as we reflected, the truth is that some of the imbalance we have, some of of the, the maybe the leaning away from doing more evangelistic stuff we have, it's not about gift, it's about comfort zone. It's difficult to preach the gospel in Liverpool in the 21st century. It's scary sometimes. It's, it's a little bit, ooh, what's, what's the reaction going to be? We see stories of people in the news losing their jobs over preaching the gospel sometimes in their context. It's out of our comfort zone. And that's a problem that we need to address, actually. And you know what? We do have Ephesians 4 gifted evangelists in this church Look at the likes of Jack and Sheila and, and, and I, I sometimes seen and heard their frustration as they look at other people saying, just do it. <laughs> Come on. Like it's, it's easy. Do it. Like look, look what we do and just do that. And actually I honor, you, honor you guys because of what you guys do. And I'm looking forward to learning more and more from you guys because I, I, I've seen in my heart actually. There's a lack sometimes of, of my willingness and my, Courage to go out there and I know that I can spend time with Jack and Sheila and and pick some of that up. In fact, I'm meeting you guys for tea and coffee tomorrow and that's part of what I want to do with you tomorrow. I just want to hear, how do you do this? (laughs) Because I don't feel gifted in it, but I know I need to do it. I believe Jack and Sheila have gospel tunnel vision. You spend the morning with Jack and Sheila, you're in no doubt what their main priority in life is. It's true, isn't it? They just want to advance the gospel. They just want people to know that Jesus is Lord and that he's available to them. And that's a great encouragement to us and a spur to us. And we all need to just see that in action and say, wow, now how do I get involved? Guys, we need to keep on doing what we're doing. We need to keep bringing people to maturity. We need to keep seeing people go from Christian to mature Christians to even mature Christian. We're going to keep doing the discipleship stuff that we do. It's not bad. It's not wrong. But also, I believe as a leadership and as a church we need to we need to have some more gospel urgency we need the sort of urgency that Paul had we need the sort of perspective that Paul had are we able to ensure that in every way Christ is preached at the moment we're some of the way there but we've got further to go So it's going to mean a shift in our focus. It's going to mean some changes in our activities. It's going to mean a church calendar more intentionally geared towards regularly preaching the gospel in a variety of contexts. From the front on a Sunday to other evangelistic events during the week. So actually just day by day on the streets of Liverpool with whoever we meet and in whatever context you're in. We need to do more to advance this great gospel. And it means not living in a church bubble. You know, we love spending time together. We love this family of believers. We love hanging out together and just going on this journey together. But we also need to know some non-Christians in our lives. (laughs) We need to have people who don't know Jesus so that we can bring them to Jesus. We need to intentionally spend time with those people as a priority and be urgent with the gospel with them. I think there's a part of Paul who's delighted to be in prison away from all the Christians and just solely spending time with non-Christians because it meant he could do what he loved doing. Yeah, he loved the fellowship. He loved the church. He loved the believers. But actually, I think there was a part of him was like, right, what an opportunity this is. I've got a load of non-Christians chained to me. This is fun. I don't think I always look at it that way. It's a challenge, isn't it? Guys, this city needs the good news of Jesus more than ever. And if we are bogged down and disheartened in our own struggles and our own activities, then we rob this city of the gospel. We rob it. Our call is to share it. To share it as our our first priority for God's kingdom. When we show, when we focus on Jesus and we show the world, we show this city that we have joy in him despite our struggles despite our circumstances, despite everything we go through individually and as a church, then we model something truly remarkable. Remember what Brother Yun said. It's actually the power, this huge power in seeing a Christian struggle but focusing on God and giving him the glory. That says something much more dramatic to a non-Christian than a Christian has a really comfortable life and nothing ever goes wrong for them. There's a much stronger story to tell. And so I want to invite you this morning again afresh on a journey with us up and out across this city. A journey which will have struggles. A journey where we may face persecution. We will face persecution. It's a promise. A journey where life won't always be roses. Where things will go wrong. And we're in that we preach Christ and we focus on him and we rely on him And we know that at the end of that journey, it's just the beginning. Because the promises of God over our lives, we will prosper. We will be free from harm. We will be free from suffering in eternity. For now, we suffer and we preach Christ. And we spread the word of this amazing gospel.